Revelation. We find ourselves back finishing up chapter 6 today. There we go. I was wondering why it was so loud. All right, finishing up chapter 6 today. We were in Revelation 6, 12 through 17. Today's message is entitled, Terror and Foolishness, and we will see much of both. But let's go ahead and read, and then we will dive into this morning's sermon. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Begs us a great question. Why is the central theme of prophecy in Scripture focused on the great day of the Lord? If we read through the Old Testament 19 times, it is referenced in the New four times. Over and over we see the central theme of prophecy pointing to a great day of the Lord. Whether in the historicity of culture and the immediate days of the Lord, or in the eschatological sense of the future day of the Lord. But over and over prophecy continues to point to that great day. And it should beg the question of why. Why is God continuing to point towards that? We always think of Scripture always pointing towards the cross and salvation in the blood of the Lamb. And it does. But in that is pictured the wrath of God and the judgment of God on sin. So the two have to go hand in hand. Christ could not go to the cross and pay for the sins of the redeemed and yet leave unjustified the sins of the unrepentant. God must deal justly and in His holiness with both. So we know that at the cross you have the culmination of the ages and you have the culmination of salvation. And yet on either side of the cross, just like you had the two thieves, you have two differing peoples. You have those who repent and who find salvation. And you have those who shake their fists and spit in God's face and find themselves under God's judgment. This is why in the Old Testament and the New, everything points to the great day of the Lord. Like I said, there is historicity there. There was times where Judah and Israel were judged under a great day of God's wrath, where God stepped in specially in history and judged His people. And yet there is also the speaking... Just Also, there was the speaking of the future day of the Lord, which is yet to come. We have not seen it yet. It is yet to be here. But God will deal justly and righteously and in His holiness with all people. Not just those who are covered by the blood of Christ, but by those who reject the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Psalm 7 and verse 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. And He is. And rightfully so. And yet, he is not immediate to judge. 
How many people do we know that are wicked, that live long lives? How many times do you read through the history of Israel and you see this good king lasted eight years and this wicked king lasted 55? Over and over again, we see God dealing with man and his problem of sin. And it's common to every person that draws breath that they have a sin problem. It is the main and central theme of Scripture is that man left to himself is unable to account for his sin before a holy God. And because of sin, judgment must come. But it doesn't always happen immediately. There is much grace in the patience of God. The Apostle Peter told us that. That don't count the patience, uh, count the patience of God as salvation. Because God doesn't immediately judge and condemn. God gives grace. But we see in the unfolding of Revelation and the unfolding of the first five seals that God's grace is running out. And not because He's not infinite in His grace, but because the day of judgment is near at hand. Because God has set a time and fixed a time and point in history where He will judge sin. And man will no longer have the excuse that in tomorrow... Maybe I'll believe. Man has to deal with his sin today because he's not guaranteed tomorrow. And one day, grace will run out and judgment will sweep in and it will be devastating. But it will be right and perfect. In the history of Scripture where God gives these scenarios to Israel and to Judah specifically, where He judges them, God gives warnings, does He not? Over and over in Scripture, we see why God dealt with Israel the way He did. Because of unbelief, because of sin, because of idolatry, because of playing the harlot. We see all these scenarios. And we see in the New Testament that the New Testament church struggles with the same things. Why? Because the words of Solomon ring true. There is nothing new under heaven. Man continues to do the same foolish things that he's done since the beginning of time. But they should act as a warning to the church. They should act as warning bells to make us sensitive and soft to the stirring of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives. We should always be quick to hit our face and our knees in repentance before God. We must not turn a deaf ear to the Spirit when it pricks our hearts. But we must heed the urgent warnings that He gives because God will specifically and personally intervene to judge sin. God displays His holiness and His power and His judgment of sin. And it is terrifying. And it is fully destructive. And yet it's perfect in all its ways. Let's look at a few descriptions this morning in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. I've actually been reading through Isaiah in my devotions and hit 13 a couple days ago. But Isaiah 13. There's a couple descriptions in here, and this was speaking of the immediacy of the Babylonians and the judgment that God will bring against Babylon because of their sin in persecuting Israel. But in Isaiah 13, and specifically verse 6, he says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then down in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger. To make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. 
That is a description of God's wrath against sin and his judgment against the sinful who are unrepentant. Turn over to the book of Joel. It's a small little book. Right before the book of Amos. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Joel, chapter 1, verse 15. Joel, chapter 1, and verse 15. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then over in chapter 2 and verse 11, he gives a greater understanding. For the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Turn over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a great book. Let's back a little bit. Ezekiel chapter 30. I know we've looked at a lot of these, but again, we're setting our tone for today. Ezekiel chapter 30 and verse 3. For the day is near... Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. God is encompassing all peoples. He is not specifically picking out one or two people groups, but He's holding all men accountable. Everybody, everywhere has to do with the Lord. Everybody will be accountable. Stay in Ezekiel there and turn back to chapter 13. This is a very specific one. This is going to show us that God deals immediately, but also in stages where the day of the Lord is not just about the future, but the immediate. Chapter 13 of Ezekiel, and many of you may not know, Ezekiel wrote the bulk of his, of his book when he was actually in captivity in Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 5, God gives this warning. You have not gone up into the breaches. Nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. Now Ezekiel was already deported at this time to Babylon, and that was around 597. Him and 10,000 Jews were marched off by Nebuchadnezzar, and they were brought to Babylon. Now there was a deportation that happened before that. Eight years before, in 605, when Daniel and his friends were deported to Babylon. But it wasn't until the year of 586 that Nebuchadnezzar came back and utterly destroyed and wiped out Jerusalem completely. Destroyed its walls, destroyed the temple, carried everything off. There was nothing left but desolation and ruin. And that was the great day of the Lord that God specifically was pointing out and heralding years before. Repent and turn back. And yet we know that Judah and Jerusalem hardened their hearts. And therefore, God brought about the destruction and the deportation of a nation. No longer was Israel in Israel. Israel was scattered to the four winds of the earth. God illustrates His warnings before His final judgment. And we've been seeing that in the book of Revelation as we were marching through the first five seals. God is continuing to ring forth judgment after judgment to wake the people up that the final day of the Lord is coming. And it will be swift, and it will be great, and it will be terrible. Where are we at? Where are we at as a people, personally, as families, as a church, as a community, as a nation? Are we heeding the warnings of Scripture and the warnings of God? Are we heeding the pressings on our heart and on our spirit of what we ought to be doing? 
of what we ought to be about. Of any sin in our lives, are we dealing with it? Sin in the church, are we dealing with it? Sin in our communities, are we dealing with it? Sin in our nation, are we praying for it? Mark, you brought it up this morning. We ought to be praying for our nation. Because our nation, left to its own devices, is going to do and follow what every other nation in history has done. And that's leading itself to its own destruction and ruin by shaking its fist in the face of God. What are we heeding in God's judgments and in God's warnings? Because God has over and over again in Scripture shown us through the history of the earth nations that have risen and fallen because of pride and sin. Over and over we have seen God's judgment. Do we heed the warnings or do we turn a deaf ear? Does it draw compassion from our hearts or does it harden it because we don't like it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there with me, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. Now as the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now, Paul here, speaking to the Thessalonian church here, was talking about the second coming of Christ. And this was at a time where in chapter 4, if you remember chapter 4, Paul explained the rapture and the order of the rapture to the Thessalonian church. Because they were concerned that many brothers and sisters had already fallen asleep and didn't know where they fell. But the Thessalonian church was doing something that we still see the church doing today. And they were putting the times of Christ's return in front of their spiritual growth and maturity today. That has never been profitable for the church, nor will it ever be. That you give up the grace and growing of today for looking ahead at the future of when you do not know. So many people put emphasis on, I can figure out by going through all these numbers and all these dates and all these prophecies, and I can figure out when God's coming back. And we look so much at that future that we forget to grow in grace today. That we forget to mature in the Word today. That we forget to fill and trim our wicks and fill our lamps and put on clothes of holiness and righteousness washed white and pure by the blood of Lamb. We forget to do those things. And Paul was continuing to encourage the church at Thessalonica to put off the things that are unprofitable and put on truth, but not putting on truth at the expense of the moment. Why? Because we are a people of time, constrained by time and constrained in the here and now. We can't live in yesterday. We can't live in tomorrow. We can only live here and now where we're at. And we must focus on that because that's where you can meet God is in the here and now. I can't meet God in the moment an hour from now until I get there. I can't meet God in my childhood because I've already passed that. I have to meet God here and now. We have to be cognizant of what we are doing today. Don't exchange today for the future that we do not know. And yet God has chosen not to tell His people His timing. God didn't tell us in His Word, by the way, this day, this hour, this moment, and this year, this is when I'm coming back. But He does give us a principle to always be ready 
to always be hastening the day of the Lord along, to continue preaching and teaching the gospel. Why? Because we are about people. People made in the image of God. We are to have compassion and love. Why? Because we see the terrors of this book and the terrors of God's judgment and know that unless they repent, it will come upon them. That should motivate the church more than anything, should it not? Again, don't let the expense of tomorrow ruin today and what we should be doing. We are to tell the times and the seasons. Scripture tells us that. Jesus admonished his followers. Be aware of the seasons. Be aware of what's happening. Why? Because you can tell by the things that are happening that you're getting close. What should that do for you? Well, if you're getting close to something that you're expecting, you get excited, but you also prepare all the more. Do you not? If you know you have a trip two months down the road, are you going to pack your socks and underwear today? No. But as you get closer, you're going to start packing more and start setting aside more things. You're going to start making a list of things that you need to do. You're going to start wrapping up business and getting jobs done. You're going to start letting people know, hey, by the way, I'm going to be gone. Can you watch my house or watch my animals? You're going to make preparations. And they're going to get all the more urgent as the day draws near. And that's what God is asking us to do, that as we see the day of the Lord drawing near, that we take note of it. Not getting distracted, but getting focused. Getting the gospel out to people. Talking to people daily about the word. How many of us know people that are going to endure the judgments of this book? Because they refuse to repent. All of us. How many of us have family members? How many of us has close friends or co-workers? How many of us interact with people every day on a daily basis knowing that they refuse to believe the gospel? And we say nothing. Or do we say something? Do we have a compassionate heart of Christ to preach the truth even at the expense of our reputations? At the expense of hostility? At the expense of rejection? Why? Because understanding that the rejection isn't of you, it's of the Word. It's of the truth. But here we see that even after the first five seals and the five judgments, they're still going to be taken unawares. Scripture tells us that. Second Peter 3, verse 4. Turn back just a couple pages if you want. If not, I'll read it for you. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4 says this. And these will be saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Again, over and over, the people of the earth are not finding themselves being diligent. They're just saying, eh, life goes on as it always has. Why do we need to be worried about anything? But if you get a little bit later, Peter nails down exactly why in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. You cannot do that without purpose. You cannot do that without a will and a desire to be about the work of the Lord. To be about personal growth. To be about maturing as a man or a woman of faith. You can't do that without preparing your family on how to live in a world that is full of sin and injustice. You cannot do that if you're not a church talking about the things of God and talking about sin and dealing with it. You cannot do that if you are a nation just worried about wanton pleasures and whatever you want and about pride of life. You have to stop and to look to Christ 
then you have to point others to Christ. Because that and that alone is hope. There's no other hope outside of Jesus Christ because there's no firm foundation. If everything changes based on your circumstance, where is hope? It's always fleeting. It's always moving. It's always in the unknown. But we know that we have a firm foundation because we have truth in the Word of God that tells us that. Now, Revelation 6. Let's get into our meat here. Revelation 6. And as we've noticed in the first five seal judgments that there's been a force that has been enacted. This force that we see here is the force of fear. Fear is very real. You know that the Scripture talks about fear a lot? 365 times God says, do not fear. Why? Because we're a fearful people, right? One of the powerful human emotions is fear. It can cause and produce cowardice or heroism. It can produce strength or weakness, aggressiveness, passivity, uh, passivity, reason or confusion, clear thinking or total panic can also make the heart beat faster or stop it dead. Everybody reacts to fear in a different way, but everybody reacts to fear. It produces many different things. People fear many things, but oftentimes they don't fear the things that they should. Right? We fear loss, persecution, disease, suffering. Some of us fear spiders. Some of us fear monkeys or cats. Some of us fear all different stuff. But there are principles that God said that we should fear. Turn over to Luke chapter 12. Jesus himself spoke to this. Luke 12. Because man finds himself acknowledging fear in places that he should not and treating God like a passive grandfather who is just there to love you and not discipline you. Luke chapter 12 and verse 5. Jesus is talking about this exact thing. And he says, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's speaking of God. He's telling the peoples, Stop living in fear of everything and live in fear of God. Now, there is a difference of the fear of God for the Christian and for the unbeliever, is there not? The fear of God for the believer is a reverence of His holiness and that we react to that holiness in a way of living and conducting ourselves in righteousness and holiness. But for the unbeliever, there is a terror. It is a fear. It is an absolute terror of God because God will judge sin unmercilessly. Because God will deal with it utterly and completely. There is a difference of the fear of God because you're an unbeliever and a fear of God because you love Him. But they all go back to who is God and who as He said He is. It all goes back to having a correct view of who God is. You have to start with the wisdom of who God is or you'll get lost along the way. So we're going to look at three key elements this morning in our text from 12 to 17. And the three things we're going to look at in this passage about fear is one, why Is there a need to fear? And what are you fearful of? The second thing is the scope of that fear. And the third thing is the outcome of the fear. Now remember, this passage here 
is set in the time frame of you. We've already passed the midpoint of the tribulation. We've already seen that the abomination of desolation has been set up. We already see that Satan and the Antichrist are ruling and the false prophet is preaching the worship of Antichrist. We see that we've already passed this midpoint and we're moving into the great tribulation. And yet it's in the midst of this that God has removed restraining of wickedness by removing His Spirit. And we see that there have been five great judgments on the earth already and man continues to just, eh. They continue to believe the lie of Satan. They continue to believe that they're okay. That the judgments that have happened have been at the power of man. Right? War, famine, disease. All those things can be chalked up to man's doing, can they not? But we're going to see one really awesome thing. That as we've had five seal judgments that have involved man, we have a seal judgment now that involves only God. God is making a statement. These are my judgments upon sin and upon the earth, and you will recognize that I am God. This is where we find ourselves this morning. God is making a statement of who He is and that His holiness is nothing to be trifled with. So, why fear? Verses 12 through 14. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. We have a great period of tribulation here. Great period of natural disasters. On a scale that has never been seen before. Jesus describes these things in Matthew 24 and 29. In Luke 21 and 11 and 25 and 26. Jesus in his Olivet Sermon and his discourse there is telling people these things are coming. And he talks about the moon being, being as blood and the sun being darkened. And about great earthquake. The day of the Lord is a day to fear. The prophets, Joel in chapter 2, spoke of many things that were awesome in nature. God uses nature many times as terrifying and violent weather meets out his judgment upon man and upon the earth. But he lists here, John lists for us six things of terrifying judgments that God brings on the earth. And we're going to look at those individually this morning. The first is a great earthquake. And that word earthquake has in its word understanding of a shaking. And we know that in Scripture, speaking of this great day, that it says not only will the earth, but the heavens will be shaken. So great will this shaking up of the world be. God is going to make it known. When have we ever heard of a worldwide earthquake? Not even Google's heard of a worldwide earthquake. It's never happened. Yes, there have been earthquakes in various places, but God's going to send a great earthquake that's going to shake the entire earth. It's going to shake everything at once. When has God ever done that? Well, God, when he went to Mount Sinai to give the law, he shook the mountains. He made the earth tremble at his presence. When Elijah called upon him in 1 Kings 19, God shook the earth. At the death of Jesus, 
Did we not read of the great shaking of the earth and the tombs cracking open? The renting of the veil. When Paul and Silas were in a jail in Philippi, did not God shake the foundations of the jail and break open the jail cells? God has shaken the earth that many times, and yet this will be on a scale that we cannot even fathom. And it's interesting to look at that because it should frighten people. People often are scared of earthquakes, right? We know people in areas that have earthquakes often, a lot of people will move away from those areas or avoid them, right? A lot of people don't like to live in certain areas of California because of earthquakes. We also know that people deal with their fear in different ways. After an earthquake, people have been known to sleep outside for days or weeks at a time because they're scared to be in their house again. We know that psychologists and psychologists, their numbers go up after earthquakes because people don't know how to deal with the fear of it. And yet, some people permanently move away from those areas. Might be the place they've always wanted to live, but after a first shaking, they may run for the hills, right? Earthquakes are scary. And yet this, on an unprecedented scale of a worldwide shaking, it is terrifying. It is frightening. The first five seals have already happened, and yet God is making a time of a shaking. After the first five seals and the great difficulty, worldwide war, famine, pestilence, death, and now God's doing more. And he's shaking the earth, trying to get a hold of stubborn man's eyes and his heart. Sometimes we ask ourselves, how much does it take for God to get a hold of a person, right? Well, God's going to shake the entire earth, and still people are, not going, or still people are going to reject the idea of God. God shatters the facade of Satan and his power and control. All people will recognize that this judgment comes from God and God alone. It's interesting because the next one, the second one that we see is that the sun becomes black as sackcloth. Now, let's go back to the history of sackcloth, shall we, for a minute? I'm going to digress just a little bit. So sackcloth, back in the early days of Israel, was a cloth made out of black goat's hair for mourning. It was a mourning cloth. It was worn in times of mourning, in times of suffering. How many times have we seen the kings of Judah and Israel repent in dust and ashes and sackcloth? It was typically made of black goat's hair. Can't see through black goat's hair, by the way. It's pretty impenetrable. But that's what God is saying. The sun will become black as that. And there should be mourning. God is judging the earth for sin. And yet it's not bringing about mourning. Is not bringing about a brokenness. Now, there's a lot of scientists and geologists and geophysicists out there that talk about the plasticity of our mantle, okay? Our mantle is very unstable. It's kind of like plastic. It's easy to move. Plastic, when it's warm, flows pretty good, doesn't it? Well, this is the idea of what our crust kind of sits on. And a lot of that comes from out of the Great Flood, right? When God broke open the, the uh, waters of the deep. It busted through that firm foundation of the earth. The earth has never gone back together. Science has shown us that over and over again. There are a lot of cracks and fissures and the tectonic plates and how that all moves. It's because God broke things up once. And yet this great earthquake, you know what it's going to do? It's going to break it open more. And what's going to happen? What do we know happens when you have a, uh, a great earthquake around a volcanic area? You get a lot of eruptions, right? Well, think about this. We have all those areas called what? The Ring of Fire, right? And I'm not talking about the Nemo Disney one. 
I'm talking about around the world. We have all these areas of great volcanoes. Now imagine if the entire Earth is shook by an earthquake of a magnitude we've never seen. You're going to get tons of volcanic activity. And the speculation is, is the reason that the sky, that the sun becomes black as sackcloth is because of all the smoke and ash and gases that are pouring forth at this time. It's going to block out the sun. You're not going to be able to see it. It will be terrifying of the violence that is unlocked out of the earth. I don't know about you, but volcano is not something I want to witness firsthand being right there watching it go. But the whole world is going to be covered with this shaking. Thirdly, he says the whole moon appear as blood. The moon became like blood, John said. And that is an effect of smoke and ash in the atmosphere. It blocks out the light of the moon. It'll make the moon appear in a different color. It's actually scientifically proven it can do that. To look up through ash and gas and smoke can make the moon and the light from the moon appear red. The effect is great in the atmosphere. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah 13, verse 12, uh, 10. Isaiah 13 and verse 10. There's two places we're going to go, there and then Joel. So be ready to flip. Isaiah 13 and verse 10. Speaking of the great judgment and the day of the Lord, Isaiah says this, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises up, and the moon will not shed its light. Then flip over a few over to Joel. Be back right there again. Joel chapter 2 and verse 10. Joel 2 and verse 10. Before them the earth quakes and the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. You know how devastating to nature and the world cycles this will be? Think about it. Our earth cycles on what two things? The sun and the moon. All of life has been around the cycles of day and night. We've had it since the beginning of the earth. And yet this will be disrupted. There will be so much smoke and ash that the, that the sun will appear black as sackcloth and the moon red as blood. We'll have these two great lights that God gave to govern the day and to govern the night, and you won't see them. Nature won't know what to do. Plants will be devastated. Life will be devastated. How hard is it for us to live in a time where you don't have, can't count on the sun being able to be seen? How many of us struggle with the cloudiness of winter? I do. Imagine if the sun was always black for a period of time and the moon cast no light. That would be hard to deal with. And yet this is part of the judgment of God shaking the earth to try to get a hold of man's heart. The devastation of nature will disrupt and displace many animals, many plants. And this will cause great fear and panic. We know that in the days of the judgments of God on Egypt that that blackness was terrifying. Utter darkness. And yet, man continues on in his sin. Fourthly, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Now that word star 
actually doesn't literally mean just a star, because if all the stars fell to the Earth, one thing would happen. They're too big. They'd actually incinerate the entire Earth. Earth would not be here. Plus, if you go over to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 12, it says the stars are still there. So if they're still there later, it doesn't mean those here. What that word is likely implying is asteroids, meteors, things like that, because those are actually heavenly hosts. Those are um, what John would have considered stars in their day. But stars will fall to the earth. And John's description here of the range of its devastation is interesting. Mark, you and I talked about this not too long ago, of that imagery of a tree casting its fruit because of a strong wind. That's how devastating that this will be. God is sending, after all the smoke and ash, you can't see anything because the sun is blotted out and the moon is blotted out and it's light, and then all of a sudden you have all these asteroids and meteors hitting the earth. It's got to be terrifying. God is making destruction on a scale we have not seen, nor will we ever see again, praise God. But in the darkness, all these rocks will be hitting the earth. And we know, looking at science, the destruction that meteors cause or asteroids will cause hitting the earth. How many doomsday scenarios have we heard of where like a big asteroid or a big meteor will hit the earth, right? But this is on an unprecedented scale because it's not just one or two. It's lots, like a tree that casts its unripe figs because of a great wind. So will this be like. There'll be nowhere to run and nowhere to hide from the destruction that God's going to bring on the earth. And then John talks of something else. Actually, Jesus talked about it in Luke 21. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of it in Isaiah 34. The sky splits us apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Now, the rending of the sky is not its final obliteration because we know that that won't happen until Revelation 21 when God will destroy the heavens and the earth and create a new heaven and earth. But this rending of the sky is so great. Honestly, I have no good explanation for you what it's going to be like. I don't know. But I know it's so terrifying that John says it's just like a scroll rending itself and opening up. I don't know what it's like. But I know that it will cause fear and terror in the hearts and the lives of men. But God continues to strike at the heart and the power of Satan. Ephesians 2, verse 2, tells us that Satan is the prince and the power of the air. And yet it is exactly that that God is rending in half and showing him powerless. Satan has been deceiving the world into a false peace that he thinks he brought. He's brought about the destruction and worldwide war and famine. God has used him in those things. And now God is saying, this is not a, Satan cannot help you. He cannot save you from this. The false prophet and the Antichrist cannot save you from the wrath of God and his judgment because God is rending their power useless and splitting it apart. God is making a statement, I am God and there is no other. Not one. No one's even close in comparison to God. And God is making his statement on the earth and his statement before all men. Everybody in the earth who is left will see these things and will know that it is God. And then John talks about another thing. Number six, the mountains and the islands are moved out of their places. The earth's crust, as we talked about, is unstable. It's moving. The plasticity of our mantle moves and sways. 
And when you have great earthquake and you have great volcanic activity, things are going to move. And God says that he's going to displace the mountains and the islands are going to move out of their places. I don't know about you, but seeing things move like that would be pretty terrifying. Just speaking personally, I wouldn't be very comfortable seeing islands moving and mountains moving. And But it's not the final flattening of the earth like we'll see in Revelation 16 when God flattens all the mountains in the fourth bold ju- uh, seventh bold judgment. All the mountains will be laid low. But even with this, there's more terror to come. John painted a picture of terror for us that people will see all these natural disasters, all the judgments of God, and yet we know more is to come, right? Because we have the seventh seal, which opens up the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet that opens up the seven bowls. God's day of judgment has just begun. And he's trying to get a hold of man's understanding. And yet we know that man continues to shake his fist in God's face. Terror will give way to foolishness. But let's look at the scope of fear. Who does it encompass? Let's look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man. So God sets up seven categories here. First off, the kings of the earth. Those are the heads of state. Whether an actual king or whether a president or whether one dictator, it's the heads of state. Secondly, the great men. The men of high-ranking officials in government and bureaucracy, those who make laws and those who, who set the ebbs and flow of a country. The commanders, all the military leaders, which is the might of a nation. The rich men, those who are in control of economics and the way that life ebbs and flows with the pluses and minuses of a stock market or whatever. Fifthly, the strong, those who are influential in a society. But God doesn't stop there. And he says also the slave and the free man. There's not a person left out of the scope of God's judgment because God shows no partiality. God does not play favorites, nor does he show favoritism. God judges sin as it deserves in every life and every heart. And it's up to us to either acknowledge that or deal with the consequences. We as God's children have been blessed with the understanding and the foresight that because of our sin, Christ had to suffer and die. And because of his death and his blood, we've been covered. But for those who have not repented, for those who do not claim the name of Christ, will fall unto judgment. Scripture is clear about that. Scripture has defined that for us over and over again. So now that we have seen the terrors that God is bringing in this judgment and we've seen the scope of the people, we're going to look at the outcome of the fear. Now again, I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning. Fear can cause many different things. It can cause clear thinking or it can cause utter confusion. And we're going to see now that this terror that God has brought brings about utter and complete foolishness. This just once again goes to show the depravity of man's heart and his sin. That without the grace of God and without the strength of his spirit, man is utterly and completely foolish. Let's look at the reaction of the people. And they said, and man, and man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, 
I don't know about you, but if God is moving mountains and God is shaking the earth, I am most certainly not going to go in a mountain or in a cave. Personally speaking, I wouldn't go there. But this is what they do. And then we see something that we've never seen before. Worldwide prayer meeting. But what is their foolishness? Are they praying to God? No, they're praying to Mother Nature. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and Worldwide prayer. And instead of acknowledging that it's God, which they do later, they pray to Mother Nature. Fall on us. Cover us up. Destroy us. Why? Because they're terrified of God's wrath. But what they don't understand is in their foolishness, they ask for God's immediate judgment. If man dies unrepentant, he goes to hell. Where there is no hope. While they are still alive, there is hope. And yet in their foolishness, they cry out, destroy us, cover us up, because we're scared of God, not realizing that in that they're going to go to the utter place of the terror of God and hell. Man, left to himself, is the fool. And it should break our hearts that it's so. There is not repentance. But as the demons shout in James chapter 2, they acknowledge God, but there is no fear of God in them. They fear God and shake in fear, but not have a fear of reverence. James tells us that. And man in his own pride does the same thing. He fears God in terror and yet refuses to bow his knee to God's sovereignty and God's control. He acknowledges that it is God who brings all this judgment and yet says, I don't need you. I can make my own way. Mother Nature, come, help me out. Why? Because many times does man not think that after death there's nothing. I had an hour conversation with somebody this week just about that exact same topic. And when you're dead, there's nothing. Poof. No more existence. And in their foolishness, they forget the reality that God's Word is true no matter what they believe. And there is life after death. And it will either be an eternal suffering and torment or it will be eternal bliss in the presence of God. That's it. There's two options. There's no gray middle road. There's no picket fence that you can walk on. You have one side or the other. When Christ stretched out his arms, there's a left and there's a right. Where do you fall? Turn with me to the book of Amos. It's a small little book. It's got a lot of good stuff. Amos was a country bumpkin, by the way. He's a really neat guy. But anyway, Amos chapter 9. Amos actually spoke to the foolishness of man. Amos chapter 9. Verse 2 and 3. Amos chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. God's judgment is unavoidable, and Amos is talking about the judgment of God to come, and he's clearing up this whole scenario for us of praying for Mother Nature to hide us. So, verse 2. Though they dig into Sheol, which is the grave, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the mount and the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. God says there is nowhere that man can go that he can get to you. Psalm 139 tells us the same thing. David's prayer. If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. Jonah proved that one, didn't he? Hey, historical record. Jonah went to the depths of the sea and you know what? God still got a hold of him there. 
Man in his foolishness cannot hide from God. Man will always be found out by God, and God will always get a hold of man because God is a creator, because God is sovereign and all-powerful, and there is nowhere that man can go that he can hide from the recompense of God against his sin. You have to deal with your sin in complete the world will finally understand that God's holiness is terrifying. Let's finish. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. Why? From the presence of him who sits on the throne, that will be God, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the day, great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They ask a rhetorical question. Who is able to stand? Nobody. Nobody's able to stand before the judgment of God. That's the point. And yet in their acknowledging of God, they do two things. They acknowledge that God exists and that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. And then they turn around and deny Him. They acknowledge the truth that God exists and that Jesus Christ is the instrument of the wrath of God. And then they deny Him. That is what man has always done. But God is showing it on a scale that is undeniable. Man can no longer admit God does not exist. Man is good at that. Man is good at denying that there's a God. We see it every day. We see it in every culture. And yet God's saying, okay, no more. You will acknowledge that I am who I am, and you will have to deal with me. And man still says, yep, you're God, you're terrifying, but I don't want you. Man left to himself is utterly and totally depraved. It is only by the grace of God that man can repent and come to salvation in Christ. And yet, out of all of this, the nations will rage against him. If you ever want some good sarcasm, read Psalm 2. God talks about the nations raging against him and that he laughs from heaven. But the sad thing is, the worst is yet to come. We're about ready to hit the later judgments, the trumpet and the bowl judgments, and it gets worse. It doesn't get better. And it's terrifying. The book of Nahum, chapter 1 and verse 6, Nahum answers that question, who can stand before the judgment of God? Nobody. So where does this leave us? What are we to do with what we learn from Scripture? How are we to apply it, right? Isn't that the whole point of coming to church? Is to fellowship and enjoy one another, enjoy the presence of God and praising and worshiping Him in the reading of His Word, but also in the applying of God's Word. So I'll be honest with you, and I've said it a few times, it's heavy reading through and studying through the judgments and the wrath of God. Because why? Because we know people on a daily basis, whether family, friends, co-workers, that are going to suffer the great wrath of the day of the Lord. So how do we apply truth? How do we apply wisdom from what we're reading? How do we apply wisdom from knowing what is going to happen? Now, we can all be like the old proverbial end-of-the-day world people. God is coming, and here's the great judgments. Now, it's true. But we should reach out to people's hearts and share the truth of the gospel that they may avoid the judgment to come. It is all in the power of the gospel. 
We are to be people of truth and to share and extend grace. Grace and mercy. Why? Because that's what's been shown and given to us. And because one day in God's judgment, he's going to harden people's heart like he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And God is going to enact his judgment and his vengeance on the earth. That should move us to compassion. It should move us to a broken heart for people. It should move us to love not just one another well, but love the world well. To not be of it, but to be a part of it. We are separated from the world, and yet we live in it. We need to have an impact for Christ. Our lives should be centered around the truth of God's Word. And yes, God is a terrifying God because He's holy, because He is the only one, because He's all-powerful. And yet, we have a different fear of God. Yes, that would be fearful if we knew we were going to be stuck under the judgment of God. But knowing the truth that we're not, we fear and reverence God for who He is because He's still holy even in His grace and His mercy. That's the beauty of the Gospel. The truth of who God is is not negated by one thing or another. God's wrath and God's love are of equal parts. God's holiness encompasses all of that. And you either fear one way or another a holy God. So let's teach the world how to fear rightly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, once again for the grace and the mercy shown to us because of the blood of Christ. Lord, we are humbled. Humbled as a people who are just like what we've read about, stubborn in heart often. And yet, because of your patience, you have allowed us to come to Christ. Because of your great love and mercy, you have given us a way through the blood of Christ to come before you as children, adopted and made pure. Lord, may we not be silent in our days but may we be about your work. May we be about sharing compassion and, lo- and the love of Christ with a world that is lost and headed towards great and terrifying destruction. Lord, we know that it is your spirit that works, that it's nothing of us, but that you have given us the responsibility to preach and teach truth to all men in all nations. That you have called us to go out and make disciples and to baptize them into Christ. Lord, may we be faithful as your church to speak truth in love, to have compassion instead of bitterness, to love instead of to be offended. Lord, may we be faithful to the commission that you've given us as your church. Lord, we just ask that you will bless and apply your word to our hearts and to our minds that we may be people and doers of the word for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.